three more Sundays with the Minor Prophets. We're enjoying working our way through, and today we turn to the prophet Haggai. Hear these words as an introduction to this prophet. Despite the sketchy historical information available about many of the prophets, names, backgrounds, dates of their ministry, scholars are confident the work of Haggai took place between August 29 and December 18 of the year 520 BCE. Pretty specific, huh? Those four months changed the life of a nation. The book of Ezra tells us, that the, uh, tells us about the return of the exiles from Babylon and the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and Ezra connects Haggai with Zephaniah. Now, if you remember from last week, Zephaniah was concerned about purifying ancient Judaism, which he believed had been, imp uh, um, had been polluted with an impure blending of the worship of Yahweh with the pagan religion of the Assyrians whose presence had influenced the nation for about 300 years. While Zephaniah and Haggai seem not to have been chronological contemporaries, they may have been separated by as much as 100 years, their prophecies are related. Both are concerned with the restoration of Jerusalem, rebuilding the walls, fortifying the nation, which they believe could come only by the regeneration of religion which would be symbolized by the reconstruction of the temple. In an era of uncertainty, a time of change for the nation, the prophets believed a building project, a church building project is what was needed. Long before Hollywood coined the phrase, Haggai said to his people, in effect, if you build it, they will come. If you rebuild the temple, the people will come. Invest in this house, and God will come. The nation will prosper. As we look around at the chaos we are experiencing, a nation increasingly divided, it's amazing to be able to say increasingly divided, but that seems to be the case, more and more people unable to discern truth from fiction, integrity from conspiracy, pouring our lives, our effort, our money into the reconstruction of the church in America might be more ancient advice we desperately need. History is interesting, you know. Our older son, who's just beginning his fourth year of medical school, says that there's a common motto for med students who literally spend eight to ten hours of dedicated study and lab work and hospital mentoring each day for four years before they start the long work of residency. Jackson says they say the days are long, but the years are short. The days are long, but when you look back, the years are short. We are living through some very long days. A 24-7 cable news and social media cycle only make the days longer, but one day, when the future reads back onto this perilous chapter in our history, it will seem like it has come and gone in a flash. That's how we read history. Years ago, for our Wednesday night discussions, and I've mentioned this book many times, but we read and studied Phyllis Tickle's book called The Great Emergence. 
Her thesis is that about every 500 years, the church has something like a great attic sale, she says. Everything gets put out on the lawn, everything is up for grabs, and a new church emerges. 500 years ago was the Protestant Reformation. 500 years before that, the great schism dividing Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism. 500 years before that, the end of the Roman Empire and the beginning of Christendom proper. And 500 years before that, the birth of Jesus. When she wrote her book more than 20 years ago, she said we are again going through that kind of upheaval of change. When our great-great-great-grandchildren read it in the history books, it will sound like we woke up one morning and there was just a new world and a new church. But birth doesn't happen that way. They call it labor for a reason. And we are in that process, a new church being born. I really believe that. The Babylonian exile, we've talked about it all summer long, the Babylonian exile through the lens of history, well, it sounds like Nebuchadnezzar came in, destroyed the city, carted off the people to Babylon. They set up shop in that foreign land. Seventy years later, Cyrus of Persia overthrew Babylon, announced that the Jews could come home. They returned, rebuilt the temple, and voila, everything just returned to normal, right? That's not the way it happened at all. You see, most of the people who got carted off into exile died in Babylon. Seventy years was longer than the average lifespan of most people in that age. So the people who returned from exile were either uncommonly old or they had never seen Jerusalem to begin with. The same dynamic was true for those who had stayed at home. And think about the land at home, and how contentious that must have been when the exiles returned. Most of the people carried into exile were people of means, the government officials, religious leaders, the kind of people that an invading king would most need to quiet in order to seize control of the remaining population. But when they were carted off, the people left behind in Jerusalem, well, they didn't just mark those houses and the land that it belonged to the exiles, saving that property until one day when those original owners might return from exile. No, that land was eventually taken into possession, not stolen as much as just assumed by those stayed, who stayed behind. And then 70 years later, the new owners of these properties were the children, children who had inherited that property from their parents, who had in turn assumed that property from the people who had been exiled. Understand? So you could probably forgive those people living in Jerusalem for thinking after two generations that that land actually belonged to them now, not to these Jewish immigrants, these strangers who were now returning the children of the original owners of that land who were now long dead and gone. Imagine coming home trying to claim your grandfather's property and somebody else is living there who says, not so fast, my father gave this to me. A lot of tension over the land in Israel, in Jerusalem, as the exiles returned home. So return from exile sounds like a grand thing, 
and from the perspective of hindsight, with the vantage of long time, it was. But in that moment, this was hard. And that temple we hear so much about, the temple that was the center of life in Israel, well, apparently this was not so before the exile. In his biblical commentary, Eugene March says, the temple functioned as primarily the royal chapel of the monarchy. The people as a whole did not go to this sanctuary of the king before exile. When the exiles returned, they came with a charge from the king of Persia. Now, this is an odd thing. The king of Persia overthrew the Babylonians and allowed the Jews to come home, and the king of Persia gave them a charge to rebuild the temple. King Cyrus, a pagan, also gave money to the exiles to come home and rebuild the temple. But in Israel, that southern kingdom of Judah, well, life had changed. That happens in 70 years. Jerusalem had changed. People had died. There were new leaders. They had new ideas. You know those crazy young people and their crazy ideas. We've never done it like that before, you know. That's just not like it used to be. The religion had changed in 70 years. And so not everybody was on board with a national building project to reconstruct an old broken down temple. While the exiles may have had some idealized vision of making Israel great again, in Judah, life had changed. Not everyone wanted to go back to the way it was before. The project to rebuild the temple had started several times, each time running out of steam. And then Haggai came along, and he shamed the people just a little bit when he came home and saw what was happening. The year was 520. This is 18 years after the first exile's return. They had tried to build. They had not made any progress. And Haggai said, let me quote directly, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. But is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while the house of God lies in ruin? You hear it? They had come home and fixed their own houses. They were taking care of their own homes, but the temple was in ruins. And Haggai shamed them a little for spending on themselves and not being willing to spend on the temple. As is always the case, this preachy criticism was more a spiritual critique than an economic evaluation. One of my mentors used to say, the best way to judge someone's spiritual maturity is to see how they use their money. Now, this wasn't an televangelist interested in grubbing people's money. This was just reality. His wise observation that our money always follows our priorities. Will we use our resources for our own enrichment or for a house much bigger? That's the question. As we read this history, the short years, not the long days, here's the story. Haggai returned, did his preaching, spoke to the people, shamed the people a little bit, and three weeks after Haggai called the people to account, they began their work again. And this time, they finished what they started. And as the Jews understand their history, the completion of the temple was the central component in restructuring the life of the entire nation. 
Now, this was not just a brick and mortar uh, project of rebuilding the temple, but that investment in fiscal capital symbolized a deeper commitment. The temple, the building itself, at the center of the holy city, stood for the place of God, for the practice of religion, for an essential spirituality at the center of our lives. After the Christian church in the United States has enjoyed a half century of ease and complacency, and now a few years of chaos and COVID, it is apparent to most observers that the church is in great need of great repair. It might just be the kind of priority, a recentering of life that our broken nation needs. Haggai can teach us. May it be so. Amen. It's the dreaded question. What do you do for a living? I try to imagine answering something, anything, other than the truth. But I always get scared. I consider saying, I'm a teacher, but they would surely ask me what grade or what subject, and then I would get caught in a trail of lies that I would be unable to keep up with. I often want to answer physical therapist because that's something I always thought I might want to do. But sure as the world, they would start to tell me about their rehab experience or ask them about their bum knee or their rotator cuff, and I would get them into more trouble, and my lie would be revealed. I could answer something a little closer to the truth. I'm the executive director of a nonprofit, but any good conversationalist would want to know exactly what kind of good works I was passionate about. So I always reluctantly and sometimes apologetically say, I'm a minister. The worst people to have to tell this truth to is the person sitting next to you on an airplane <laughs> or your massage therapist. Then you get stuck either having to hear how they really do need to get back into church or you settle in for some pretty terrible theology while trying to decide, do I just nod and agree or do I challenge? Nod and agree. Always nod and agree in those two circumstances. More often than not, my truthful answer kills any hope of any quality conversation. It's sad, isn't it? Never, not one time in 36 years of professional ministry has anyone ever responded to my truthful answer of I'm a minister. No one has ever said, what a great job that must be. Preaching the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and letting people know that they are loved and accepted no matter what. Never once has anybody said, what a fantastic vocation of inclusion and acceptance and welcome. 
Never once has anybody ever said, what a wonderful and fulfilling career it must be to be on the cutting edge of progressive movements of social justice and radical hospitality. No one has ever said, you must love calling people together to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and speak out for change in our systems that denigrate the most impoverished in our society. No one has ever said, how wonderful it must be to help a family seek asylum as they escape violence in Honduras. How important it is to support at-risk children in your local public schools. How vital it is to have a relationship with our Cuban brothers and sisters and speak out against the immoral embargo our country has waged against them for all these years. How great it must be to perform gay weddings for people who just want to commit their lives to one another in love. How fantastic it must be for you to march in the streets for various causes that call for equality of all people, lifting the voices of those who have been silenced with our voice of privilege. How important it is to have interfaith relationships and connections in a community filled with all kind of ways to witness to a God who is more than Christianity, but that the God of the Jews and the God of the Muslims and the Hindus and the Baha'is, that God is one with each religion giving its own voice to the profound goodness of the God of love, how fulfilling it must be to give your life to following in the way of Jesus and leading a whole community of faith to follow suit in these ways. Nobody ever says any of that. Never. In 36 years, has anyone ever assumed that this is what my job entails when I say I'm a minister or I'm a pastor? I join Haggai today in saying that the church needs to be rebuilt to be the kind of place that I just described to you, where Jesus, as represented by the church, is central. The Jesus I just claimed for you enlisting my job description. I join Haggai in saying that the church needs to be reorganized, reinstituted, reclaimed, restructured, restored, renovated, regrouped, recovered, and recaptured so that we are not an embarrassment to the name of Jesus. I would like to be proud out there the way I'm proud in here. You know what I mean? But out there, the church, maybe especially the Baptist church, has a bad name. Closed-minded, judgmental, exclusive, and condemning. That is not the way of Jesus. Why is that the message that takes the lead and not the message I just described? Some years ago, I sat in a year-long, once-per-month ecumenical cohort of pastors. Our facilitator, who is a coach and a counselor and an expert on most things church, said a sentence that stuck with me. I've shared it with you before. There's never been a better time to be the church. 
I got back to my office that day. I wrote the sentence down on a piece of cardstock paper. I taped it to my computer monitor. It's still taped up in my office. The ink has faded. The corners are a little curled. But the words are still there for me to see and embrace and embody every single day. There has never been a better time to be the church. It's another way to express Haggai's prophetic word. I will fill this house with splendor. The latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former. And in this place, I will give prosperity, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, there's never been a better time to be the church. Notice that the sentence I wrote and still hangs in my office does not say there's never been a better time to go to church, though I love that sentence too. It says there's never been a better time to be the church. Church is not something we go to. Church is something we are. In their new edition of their book entitled Re-Jesus, R-E-Jesus, Remaking the Church in Our Founder's Image, Michael Frost and Alan Hirsch have this to say. If we are to re-Jesus the church and remake it in our Founder's image, we need to go back to the daring, radical, strange, wonderful, inexplicable, unstoppable, marvelous, unsettling, disturbing, caring, powerful Jesus. The church needs to find itself in league with this Jesus, staring at him in amazement and saying, as Peter did with a trembling voice, what kind of man is this? Dare we pursue the way of Jesus, church? Read Jesus, the book, was first published in 2008. The authors felt the need for the call to call the church to recalibrate its faith around the centrality and significance of Jesus back then. Fourteen years later, they've just come out with a revised version this year because they feel this need even more today, noting that recent events have revealed deep flaws in the contemporary evangelical church. They say, as we write this in 2022, we are reading reports of huge numbers of pastors leaving Christian ministry because of the demands placed upon the church by the COVID-19 pandemic. One survey found that 50% have considered leaving the ministry in this last month. I considered it almost weekly there for a while. <laughs> How in the world were we going to keep a church together when we couldn't be together? Those reports are saying something like, 30% or one in three Christians have stopped attending church during 2020 and 2021. One in three have stopped attending. And I can tell you, our numbers bear that out. And so does every church I know. Misery loves company. We are not alone. This has led to the overall church membership in the U.S. falling below majority for the first time since records began to be kept. They go on to say that they've 
put out this new version because recent scandals involving well-known and much-loved Christian leaders have shaken people's confidence in the church. At a time when our culture is demanding justice, inclusion, and access for women and people of color, large sections of the church have responded with violent suspicion and fear, embracing a political agenda that shows deep-seated spiritual and theological bankruptcy. Have you heard? The Southern Baptist Convention, of which we are not a part Let me say that one more time. We are not a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. But have you heard that the DOJ is investigating allegations of sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention? It is past time that they be held accountable. Making it way past time for churches like ours to reclaim the way of Jesus as the God that we know God to be, a God of love, a a God of grace, a God of mercy and acceptance and inclusion, the kind of God that bore us a Jesus that says how wonderful it must be to help a family seek asylum as they escape violence in Honduras. How wonderful it must be to support at-risk children in your local public schools. How vital it is to have a partnership with our Cuban brothers and sisters and speak out against the immoral embargo our country has waged against them all these years. How great it must be to perform gay weddings for people who just want to commit their lives to one another in love. How fantastic it must be to march in the streets for various causes that call for equality of all people, lifting the voices of those who have been silenced with our voice of privilege. How important it is to have interfaith relationships and connections in a community filled with all kinds of ways to witness to a God that is more than Christianity, with each religion giving its own voice to the profound goodness of a God of love. How fulfilling it must be to give my life to following in the way of Jesus and leading a whole community of faith to follow suit. What do you do for a living? I'm the pastor of Park Road Baptist Church in the Queen City. I could not be more proud. I could not be more fulfilled. I could not be more happy. So let us cling to this hope today. I will fill this house with splendor, says the Lord of hosts. The latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, there has never been a better time to be the church. So y'all go do it. Go be the church. Go be the church. Be the church. Because out there, people are giving bad answers to what it looks like to be the church. So I'm calling on you today in this hot room that's not even lit well. Be the church so that the name of Jesus is not an embarrassment, but a high and holy calling.
May it be so. Amen.